Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, RPA is proud to present Aaron's Horror Show with Aaron Frail. This is Jason Witter, author, illustrator of Tiniest Vampire and Monsters Eating Ice Cream, and you are listening to Aaron's Horror Show. listening to Aaron's Horror Show, and I'm your host, Aaron Frail. We get to read fiction on the show and talk about some movies, books, you name it. If you like what I do here, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash Aaron Frail. You'll get some books and other cool stuff for your support. Go ahead and also reach out to me at Aaron's Horror Show at gmail.com, Aaron Horror Show on Twitter, or Aaron's Horror Show on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Aaron's Horror Show, and I'm your host, Aaron Frail. All right, we got some more Touristicu Chronicles. We now have part four. It is called Cal's Revenge. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a little bit of an update uh, since it's been a while. We, uh, of course, just got through Hayden's mistake, the flashback to how Hayden got to prison uh, to begin with. And uh, now we're flashing forward again to uh, after they had escaped from prison. So Cal, uh, of course, met a series of, of different aliens and people in prison and organized a jailbreak and and they're out now and uh, that's kind of where uh, Cal's revenge picks up. Cal tapped the light display on her forearm. The countdown displayed 4.53. The seconds seemed to tick down quicker when the cold vacuum of space threatened to devour her if the timing wasn't perfect. Damn it, Hayden, where are you? She yelled at the airlock door between her and the void. She stood on what used to be considered the ceiling of a tiny airlock in the belly of a Tricor deep space mining vessel. However, the ceiling was a relative term because she was in a microgravity zone. The low gravity was helpful because she was about to hand deliver several large crates that even a touristic mech would struggle to carry. They were drifting in a carbon nanotube mesh sack that she had used to haul them to the airlock. The vessel, a Tricor class AOC-1H7, was almost entirely automated. It would travel through the outermost reaches of space with a solar sail on one side collecting starlight to power the ship, and the other side of the sail collected space dust. Since almost every element floated through space from some long-forgotten supernova explosion, 
The ship collected the raw material that kept the Tricor a leading supplier of replicator cartridges essential for every space-faring culture. The space dust caught on the collection end of the solar sail would eventually make its way down to the center through micro-vibrations created by interstellar wind. It was a genius design. In the center of the craft, an automated refinery separated the material into its elemental components. Then they were packed in ready-to-use cartridges from small to medium-sized spaceships. A nearby ship in desperate need of supplies would dock and purchase a cartridge for the price a dying man would pay a warlord for water, and the AOC-1H7 would generate gobs of money since it was one of the first spaceship pit stops. The crew of the Tricor vessel was only seven people, and four of them were advanced robotic repair crews that kept the refinery going. The other three would keep the ship from breaking down, repair the solar sail when the occasional asteroid would tear a hole through the thin material. They all acted as a flight crew. None of the men and women aboard the long-term deep space vessel were responsible for security. In fact, there were no weapons on board. They had no reason for protection when they would never see the customers. A ship desperate enough to do business with a Tricor vessel wouldn't even see the crew. The transaction was entirely automated. The customer would dock, pay a fee, and find an airlock full of goods a minute later. Cal had no intention of paying for her goods. It was an ideal target for a robbery had Tricor not been a Turisticu-owned and operated company. The Turisticu, who call themselves humans, were one of the most brutal races in the galaxy. They enforced swift and decisive punishment, especially for deep space thieves. A pirate looking to score some replicator materials from an unarmed vessel would be on the wanted list of one of the largest armadas in the galaxy. Only the suicidal and the stupid robbed a Tricor vessel, especially because every approaching ship was carefully logged. The logs were then transmitted to the Turisticu network in the event of a pirate's reach being longer than their wit. Six of the crates, taking up most of the space in the airlock, were Tricor Solution Number 3, a mix which supplied the average 20-person vessel with replicator supplies for about a month per crate. Cal's vessel would use about half that, so the crates, surrounded by a carbon mesh net, would last about a year or so. However, the six crates from the AOC-1H7 were small in comparison to what she would have scored from the vessel. A heist that could be misconstrued as an inventory error was a much more desirable outcome than her vessel being tagged as an enemy of the Turisticu Empire, or as the humans called themselves. Because humans under-exaggerated their terror, the United Planets of Earth. Six crates would be enough to refuel with the five-finger discount, but not enough to do any more than confuse a crew and maybe earn one of them a chewing out from a superior. It was that seventh crate that was too intriguing to leave it in the possession of the Turisticus. A day before, Cal found herself in the airlock waiting for Hayden. She found herself waiting for him in a different capacity. Granork, Siular, Maker, Hathnol, and the other couple prisoners who decided to stay after their escape from the Fenpak asteroid mining prison were all waiting for the human. Granork and Orkandu with a foul temper, like most Orkandus, 
was the first to vent his misgivings. I will hoist Hayden by his entrails if he takes any longer. Then you wouldn't have any more of my delicious spam cakes, Hayden said as he brought a steaming dish of canned meat products arranged in circular patties stacked in a pyramid shape. He set the tray down in the center of a mess hall table, and everyone took a few patties. Granork took a mound, while the spam was a decent considering they had run out of carbon for the replicator a week ago. It was nothing like fresh banjo meat from back home. The memory of Cal's village seemed like it was in the distant past, even though it was a little less than two years ago. She had almost forgotten what her mother looked like. It didn't happen overnight. It was subtle. During her months in prison and the year they had spent petty thieving in the stolen vessel of Dr. Fesslerk, she thought about her mother less and less. Soon, she forgot what it was like when her mother smiled when she sang and when she laughed. The only image that remained was her mother's face contorted as she died under the fire of the Turisticue. She cried the morning when she couldn't remember the sound of her mother's song. When they first free of the prison, she took inventory of the vessel. There was a lot of scientific equipment and experiments from the mad doctor, since Hathnol, her crippled insectoid cellmate from prison, had interspecies medical training, he was able to help them figure out what they could sell and what they should keep. After they sold a bulk of the equipment, they gave the leaving prisoners their share and the rest decided to stay on board. Cal had found herself in command of the group, not because she was qualified to lead a band of space pirates but more because she was the one who always stepped in to make a decision when no one else would. She was also the one who had ideas when a fence who bought her her medical equipment asked them about a job. She never called herself Captain, but it was what Maker who said it first. The nickname stuck. Ever since she fell into the role of Captain, she reserved her tears for the shower. In prison, she did everything to fight back her tears. The inmates would serve her for all three meals if they saw her crying. Once she was out, it was like all the bottled emotions exploded from her, and she mourned the loss of her village for the first time. However, she suffered in silence. To the rest of the crew, she was confident and capable. They didn't know she was falling apart on the inside. She didn't even talk with Hayden, who was human and despite their feared reputation, seemed always to want to negotiate peace between the crew. Hayden was the only Touristic member of the crew. Through persistence and begrudging acceptance on Granork's part, he convinced the crew to start using the word human, at least in reference to him. Since Granork's clan had been all but wiped out by the Touristicus, the hulking Orkandu seemed to have a personal quest to kill hu all humans on sight. Hayden, being one of the only exceptions, half of Hayden's job, aside from piloting the ship, was abdicating on behalf of the humans. It was a little beyond most of the crew to discern the difference between a human who was a part of a corrupted government system bought and paid for by the interstellar corporations, and a human who was just trying to eke out a living for themselves. Hayden also worked his way into Cal's sleeping quarters. The attraction to Hayden wasn't a surprise because of her half-human DNA. 
they were both attractive and liked each other. The surprise was that Cal existed at all. Very few alien species were compatible, sexually speaking. Even on the off chance that two species who evolved on different worlds had similar enough physiology for the desire for sex to occur, it was even rarer when one child could be conceived. Most interspecies couples had to use advanced scientific methods to create offspring. A half-human, half-Negromodian natural birth was rare. After breaking free from the prison, Cal had contemplated going to her home world of Negromodo several times to gain insight into her origins. However, the trip would be a suicide mission, since her planet had the largest army of Turisticus in the entire galaxy. Decran coming from the planet's core was worth more than half the UPE's worth. Since everyone in her vessel was an escapee from the Turisticu prison, going to Negromodo was too risky just for information. Even though they had secured fake IDs and could dock on a Turisticu station, she couldn't justify the trip. She had to hold out for a day when a job would lead her home. Sarge, another escapee from the prison, who had got her into this mess in the first place, had ended up on Nicromoto. Cal had a suspicion that he had information about her origin. It seemed like more than a coincidence that of all villages, he ended up skulking about hers. Both Hayden and Cal knew Sarge was up to something on the planet, but they didn't know what and didn't have time to find out. They had a more immediate concern of running the ship, which was why, after a series of petty thefts and small heists, Cal found herself plotting one over a casual spam dinner. I can make our ship disappear on their sensors, Maker said. I only need to plant the device on their array. Seular, a snouted alien with a raspy laugh, said, Then they'll have already registered all SID by then. We spend a lot of money getting a stolen SID with a clean history from the Turisticus. Ah, yes, that is why Granork will fly me on a shuttle to purchase some supplies. I can attach myself to one of my space-resistant bodies and ride on the outside of the craft. It will be a simple matter of floating to the array while Granork completes the transaction. What's the point of stealing if we are going to pay for it? The point, Hayden interjected, is that we'll be taking much more than we bought. My friends used to do this back home. One of us distracted the clerk with a small purchase while the others leaned over the counter and stole the baseball cars. Seerlar roared with laughter. <laughs> you stole child guards? <laughs> Enough, Cal demanded. The point is, is that we can fly within their proximity sensors without being registered. Once Granor can make her fly away, the Tricorp crew will not see anything in the area unless they happen to be looking out the window. Meanwhile, one of us will go inside and secure a couple of crates. Who's going to be stupid enough to climb inside? Seelark commented. Easy, Cal said. Me. The heist began as planned. Maker had traversed the outside of the AOC-1 H7 in a body that made him immune to the vacuum of space. Dr. Fesslerk left behind an oppressive collection of body parts the quad helix could graft onto themselves. Cal, on the other hand, had to gear herself up so she could jump to the tricor when the shuttle detached. Gathering the supplies had been easy. 
she floated her way to the storeroom, detached the magnetic locks on six crates, and gathered them in mesh. The plan involved hauling them to the nearest airlock, like a pirate of ancient times carrying a sack of loot, due to the miracle of ejecting the atmosphere out of the airlock, the sack, a weight her entire village would have trouble dragging, could be shot towards the awaiting airlock of her vessel. While Cal was gathering the crates, the seventh one caught her eye. It wasn't located on the standard magnetic belt that would be sold to desperate vessels dying in the deepest space for triple the price. It was a belt labeled for UPE official business only. There was a stamp on the side that said Interstellar Forces number 4390940 and a pickup date for tomorrow. The Touristicu military, or the Interstellar Forces as they called themselves, used AOC-1H7s as a drop point if two vessels would cross paths on different days. The part that intrigued Cal was the symbol on the side of the crate. She had grown to hate above all else. It was the eagle crest of Machionarnak's troops. Even if she was stealing just resupplies, Cal couldn't help but cause trouble. She hated Machionarnak and spent many nights imagining the different ways she would kill him. Even though she was born in a peaceful village which commended non-violence above all else, her thoughts were nothing but violent when it came to Machionarnak. A chance to get back at him, even a small one, was one she wanted to take. Of course, all her efforts would be pointless if Hayden didn't make his flyby any time soon. Timing was critical, and her timer had reached zero seven minutes ago. She checked the readout woven into the fabric of her suit and cursed. There were no ships in the vicinity. She was about to risk a signaling him when she heard a clang. The airlock depressurized, and she put on her helmet. She looked up to see a surprised woman crew opening the inner door to the airlock. His eyes went wide as he launched from the ceiling and tackled him. She grappled with him, and they bounced off the hall. The mesh slipped from her hand, and the crates floated and scattered in the struggle. She was able to wrap one arm around his neck and the other on his breathing tube. She punctured the tube, and the air began to hiss. She plugged the puncture with her palm. "'Call your crew, and you're dead,' Cal hissed. The man trembled in her grasp. She wouldn't want to be in his situation. When thugs attacked an AOC-1H7, they weren't known for their mercy. Because of the high risk of deep space assignments, most crew could retire after seven assignments, or at least be given a death settlement that would leave their family comfortable. When they left on a mission, their loved ones wished them an uneventful one. Even though the crew member was probably wrestling with the inevitability of his death, he complied with her request and dropped his hands away from the calm controls on his suit. The IF will tag your ship. There are many fleets in the area. Y you'll run into one sooner or later. Cal was faced with a dilemma, not because of the man's threat. Maker's device assured them that they would never be tagged. Her quandary was whether or not she should let this man live to talk about his encounter. The clean getaway was impossible now. The missing crates being an inventory glitch or having a simple explanation would not come to pass. The question was whether or not to leave a witness. It would be very easy to shatter the man's helmet and toss him into space. On the other hand, the path of mercy 
wouldn't be without its risks. The Turisticu may not have the SID code of her vessel, but they would have a description of her. While he wouldn't be able to see her face because of her suit, there was nothing to stop the Turisticus from searching their ship for the missing crates. The Interstellar Forces fleets were patrolling the area. Any captain who found their vessel on a course leading away from the Tricord ship would have cause enough to stop them. If she let the man die, there'd be no witnesses. The missing crew and the crates might seed suspicion within the remaining crew. The man whose life she now controlled would be the primary suspect. Since the only craft to dock recently was the shuttle too small to hold seven crates, they would have to assume their crew member jammed the sensors and made off with the crates. All Cal needed to do was pull the oxygen tube and let space take care of the rest. Before Cal came to a conclusion about her best course of action, she saw a twinkle in the starlight from the porthole of the airlock. The twinkle grew into unmistakable glow of her ship's engines. It's about time. Cal hit a button on the control panel of the wall. The airlock began to pressurize with atmosphere again. What are you doing? The crewman voiced his concerns. Nothing that should concern you. Cal ignored him. She focused on the approaching ship. She saw it barrel roll, and she began to count in her head. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. Timing was critical, so she ignored the crewman's follow-up pleas for his life. She put her hand over the button that opened the outer door. Once she got to ten, she hit the button. In the same instant, she grabbed a carabiner, attached it to a safety belt on the crewman's chute. She locked into space just as the airlock depressurized. She pulled herself and all the crates out into the void. The safety cable prevented the man from being thrust out into the depths of space with her. Cal watched as the AOC-1H7 receded into the distance before she flipped around. The crates were ahead of her in a jumbled mess. Because she was unable to keep them in the mesh, some had bounced off the sides of the airlock on their way out and were on the wrong trajectory. She saw her ship heading towards her. It was a Citronite Explorer 46C-110. It was a ship designed mostly for long-range science missions, where weapons, maneuverability, and anything that would help in a firefight were low-grade at best. It wouldn't be a problem if the ship hadn't currently been in a firefight. The Citronite was twisting and turning while two old V-class fighters peppered the ship with laser fire. At least Cal knew why Hayden was late. However, now she had bigger problems because there was a very slim chance that he'd be able to pull off the original plan and fly by at the precise moment to catch her and the ill-gotten gains in the cargo bay. Despite the chance that she'd most likely die floating in the vacuum of space, Hayden and the rest of the crew had a good chance of making it out of the skirmish alive. V-Class fighters were an old Touristicu model shape like its namesake. They were scrapped years ago, but with all the, as with all military equipment, the older models eventually fell into the hands of marauders and thugs looking for easy targets. The two fighters must have been hiding out in the same dwarf planet Hayden was going to use while waiting for Maker and Grand Orc to make the rendezvous. A Citronite would normally be an easy target, but she had spent a little bit on upgrades. Hayden also had some combat flight training. Even ground forces in the Turisku army needed to log hours in the flight sims. The worst of her situation was not her potential death, 
She had faced death plenty of times. The worst part was the fact that she could do nothing but wait for the situation to resolve itself. She watched Hayden weave and maneuver while the two ships attempted to disable his engines. As she flew past the original pickup point, the crate spread out even further. The Citronite banked hard left with the two fighters on its tail as it passed her. Hayden weaved through the pursuers' fire and headed towards the Tricor. Hayden was heading right for the core of the AOC-1H7 at full ramming speed. The stray fire from the fighters pelted the hull of the Tricor. The V-Class sped after him without regard to the damage they were causing the Touristicu vessel. At the very last possible moment, Hayden tilted the Citronite upward and missed the crashing into the Tricor. The two fighters attempted to follow. They smashed mid-maneuver into the automated processing center she had just left. Hopefully the man she had spared made it back to the crew section in time or her charity would be for nothing. Hayden banked towards Cal and the crates. He was able to scoop her and several of the crates up from the depths of space. However, since the nearest Touristicu fleet would no bout be on its way to investigate, Hayden didn't dare make a second pass for the others. Cal slammed into the cargo bay, and one of the crates was headed right for her. She rolled to avoid being crushed and dodged another. The door sealed and the artificial gravity kicked on. She fell to the ground with four of the seven crates. Not a total failure, considering she almost lost her life for them. She took off her helmet once the buzzer alerted her of the pressurization level. Her body would ache tomorrow. Adrenaline kept her going today. The cargo bay had been cleared for the mission. It was a large metal room with three doors. One was the large door hanger that she had just flown through. Another was an equally large one leading to the bowels of the ship. The third was a human-sized door on the catwalk that surrounded the three walls of the room. There was a set of stairs leading up to the control room operated by that operated a large loading crane. She crawled over to the crates, and they were scattered throughout the room. Three were supplies her ships desperately needed, and the other was the mystery crate. It survived the vacuum of space. Cal touched the symbol of Machiarnik's crew on the... She felt another wave of adrenaline course through her body. This was different than the thrill of the heist. It was the same uneasiness she felt when she thought about the death of her village. All right. That was the first part of Cal's Revenge. So I will uh, go ahead and see you uh, next time. Thank you so much for listening. And the next time you jump out of an airlock... Make sure there's a ship ready to pick you up. Good night.